0: Welcome, you're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century.
1: If you have seen the movie Interstellar by Christopher Nolan, you will recall that scene when the mothership Endurance is severely damaged and is spinning out of control into a nearby planet stratosphere with debris flying around. Matthew McConaughey, as he watches the explosion on Endurance from the nearby lander that he was piloting, revs up the engine and decides to attempt docking. And Case, his robot said... It's not possible. No, it's necessary, replied McConaughey. There are times like this in our lives when the world seems to be spinning out of control, with debris flying everywhere, and it seems impossible to see the light. In the last few weeks, since George Floyd was killed by a policeman in Minneapolis, I suppose many of us may have thought it is not possible to fix the world. But I suppose these are also the times when we need to remind ourselves that no, not impossible, it's necessary. It is indeed necessary that we have important and in some instances long-overdue conversations at this very moment in our history. Last week, I had the privilege of having such a conversation with Miss Ebele Okubi, who is the head of public policy for Africa, the Middle East and Turkey at Facebook. Prior to joining Facebook, she was the global head of human rights at Yahoo in the management development program. Though American, Ebele lives with her family in the UK, because she does not find it safe to do so in America, where she lost her brother at the hands of the police in San Francisco in 2018.
0: There's no point being in a position of power if you're not using your power for equity, if you're not using your power for justice. There is a, Michelle Obama had this uh, quote where she talked about people uh, finally getting to the table, they're finally at the table and then they're afraid of shaking the table. If you are a person of color and you're in a position of power and your position of authority, it is your job to not be afraid of shaking the table. Because if, if you're not, if you are, what is the point of you being there? The purpose of you being there is to shine the light on other people behind you, to pull people up, to create, to, to insist that people have difficult conversations. Many
1: of you listening in are in positions of power. The question you have to ask yourself is whether you are using it for equity and justice whether you are doing your part to shake the table and force difficult and necessary conversations. My name is Veda Sanasi, and welcome to a sobering episode of In The Room.
2: Cool. Well, thank you for making time.
0: Yeah, no worries. Thanks.
2: Um, So, you know, one of the things that I always ask my guests uh, is about their personal journey. So I'm curious to know if you would be okay telling us about Ebele from the time she was a little girl.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Abella Shukudeze Okobi. I am. I always say that I come from a long line of misbehaving women. My both of my parents are Nigerian. I was born in San Francisco. My, my both of my parents came to the U.S. for education, and they had every intention of going back to Nigeria. And then the, the the Biafran War intervened. And uh, a lot of people, many people don't really know that much about the Biafran War. It was essentially Nigeria's civil war that happened when the Igbo, which are, who are my people, attempted to secede for a number of reasons. They've been um, shut out of power, principally because of um, when the British first came to colonize uh, Nigeria. The Igbo were um, a troublesome people because the Igbo have had democracy, have had some form of representative democracy for 3,000 years. And representative democracy is very inconvenient uh, for colonizers. It's very inconvenient if you want to colonize a nation to have people be able to vote on that. Um, so the Igbo had, t- had um, historically been led out of power and it kind of erupted within this, in the Civil War because a lot of the land where Igbos lived was very oil rich. My mother told me her father said, no, don't come back. Uh, it's it's deadly here, and it was deadly for my people. Uh, millions of Ebo were killed during that, uh, in what ended up being a pogrom and genocide. Which, incidentally, I didn't actually know about. So when I was little, my parents never talked about it, and still till the, till this till today, it's something Nigeria as a country has not grappled with in an open and honest way. Um, my f- grandfather was actually murdered in a po- in something called the Asaba massacre, which is a really well known amongst Igbo, where um, the Asaba, which is a one of the um, uh, I guess one of the bastions of Igbo history and heritage and culture, uh, was was um, was was uh, surrendering, and the uh, Nigerian troops came in and said, "Okay, we'll bring all the men into one room," and they were surrendering, and they brought all the men and boys, and I think boys over eight and they massacred them all my grandfather was actually killed during this massacre but i knew nothing about that until i was an adult that's how quiet um nigeria and Igbo's um have been or had been at that time about it so i'm saying all this to say that even though i didn't know about that part till i was older i knew about that i knew that my family um had come from nigeria i was taught from when i was the tiniest baby um, that being in but that being a Nigerian was the best thing you could be. That uh, I stood on the shoulders of giants. I still I have a cousin named Abella, as well. And so when we were growing up, she was called Big Abella, and I was Little Abella. And Big Abella, I was told constantly every single day, had gone to medical school when she was 18. And so that was seen as sort of the ceiling. I mean, the, sort of the floor for your achievement. So if Bigabella could go to medical school when she was 18, what are you going to do? So I grew up very much with a sense of purpose, with a sense that I stood on the shoulders of giants, and also with a sense that I could do anything. So I, at no point did I ever struggle. And I think it's, it's actually, it's a credit to my parents that they created this sort of bubble around me. But it's also something I think is very Nigerian as well. So at no point did I struggle with um, lack of confidence, or with, and I didn't even know that that uh, I didn't know that there were people who thought I wasn't capable because I was from Africa until I was old, so old um, that it just mm-hmm. seemed silly. Um, so anyway, so I grew up in San Francisco. I went to um, boarding school at thirteen. I went to an Ant- Phillips Academy Andover, which, in the context of the U.S., is um, is a um, is an elite boarding school. and the the benefit there, two things happened there. One, I discovered African Americans because there is a strain of anti-black racism that African immigrants have that i that I definitely grew up with, where you have immigrants who come in and they take on the lies that they're told in the in the host country. And I definitely grew up with that. And it was when I went to Phillips Academy and that I discovered, Um, Pan-African Blackness. And I just immersed myself. And so it's weird that I went to an elite boarding school to discover Black people. But that was my story. Um, And I also, um, it was also wonderful to be around really smart kids and realize that um, I was just as smart as any of them. So I think I see that as a formative experience as well. In terms of how I decided what to be in life, I think I started by saying Bigabella was a doctor in the cosmology of Nigerian parentage. You have four life choices. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be an engineer. You can be a collection of things that like accountant, pharmacist are all sort of in one bucket. And then the other thing you can be is a disgrace to your family because if you're not one of those things, that, that that's what you are. Um, so I, just, I, when I was little, I said I was going to be a doctor because that was the best thing. I did some sort of a uh, immersion thing where I went, I spent a day with a neonatologist and came back. I think I was 11 and said, "Nope, this is not for me." And from then on, I knew. I decided I was going to be a lawyer. At 11, I didn't really know what, what lawyers did, but I thought they're people who write. I love to write, and they're people who can fix things. Who, people who can, in some way, be part of justice in the world. And that's why. I des- that's when I decided to be a lawyer. That's why I decided to be a lawyer. I went to Columbia for law school. And it was Columbia in the 90s, in the early 90, in the late 90s, right from the mid to late 90s. And that was a time when everything was booming. And so law firms would, came to campus basically begging you to come to their law firm. I knew nothing about what it was like to work at a law firm and quite frankly got caught up a little bit in the sense that, well, if you go to a good law school and you get good grades isn't the next best thing if you're if you're truly smart and if you're elite is to go to a firm that's hard to get into. So I did that. I went to uh, Davis Polk and it was a prestigious place to be. Um, I did not know when I went. I, you can imagine that they didn't have this in their recruiting brochures, but Davis Polk, uh, those of you familiar with Brown v. Board of Education, uh, the landmark anti-segregation decision education, Davis Polk argued that case on the wrong side, which obviously they didn't put in there. That wasn't part of the recruiting pitch, but that was that kind of firm. It was a, a very old uh, New York. It was a very old New York firm. In fact, I think they didn't even let Jewish people be at the firm until a couple, maybe a couple years before I joined. But I didn't know any of that. I started Davis Polk. I thought, well, what do I want to do? Oh, I want to do the thing that is considered the most prestigious thing. I did mergers and acquisitions, and in the three, and I. Uh, in the th- in the what three years that I was there, I realized a number of things. One, I have no aptitude for merger and acquisition. I still remember a conversation with one of the partners where I was on a deal. Maybe it was a fifty billion dollar deal. I don't care. I don't know. And he said, "You're so lucky that this is your first deal because my first deal in the Ice Age or whenever it is, his first deal was. I you know it was only I don't know a million dollars, but look at you. It's like a fifty billion. I remember thinking." Is that what I was supposed to care about? I'm supposed to care about I, it's not like I get a percentage of it. I mean, but I'm supposed to care about the size of it not 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 the benefit, so not that oh, we're bringing these companies together and it's better for employees or society, but just the the amount of dollars that are that are changing hands in this deal and i and I knew that was this was not my mission. It wasn't my purpose. It wasn't my it wasn't I didn't feel that this was why I was born. Um, to do this to help people move money around, and, not, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if I just thought about who I wanted to be in the world and what my skill set was, it wasn't that. So I decided that I was going to leave. Um, I took a sabbatical, so I took I actually took a year off to travel and volunteer. And that the year that I left was the beginning of two thousand one. And when I uh, September eleventh, I was in New York because I was in between volunteer jobs. And um, I volunteered for Children's Defense Fund. I'd volunteered for an illiteracy organization in Senegal. And and, uh, the beginning of September, I was about to start my next volunteer gig. And I have a really dear friend who I'd gone to boarding school with. Uh, He was my very first boyfriend ever in life, but we became like lifelong friends. When I moved to New York, he took care of me. Uh, He was more a brother than a friend. And he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. And when I'd come back from Senegal from this trip um, in September, I was supposed to see him, I think, September 8th. Um, and he died uh, that day. And it was one of those, it is it is something that's a cliche, um, but it's a pivotal moment realizing something that everyone should know, which is that you don't have the rest of your life. You never, I mean, you never have unlimited amount of time. And it feels like mm-hmm. in your 20s, you have forever, but you never have forever. And so it was a clarifying moment for me. Uh, where I uh, made a very conscious decision that I would never do work that wasn't connected connected to mission. I would never do work that wasn't connected to, va- to values. I'd never do work that wasn't connected to purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and I and I've actually and I've and since then that has been my that has been my life that path that's been my career.
2: And uh, how did you end up at Facebook?
0: So I ended up Facebook because actually it's a little bit it's a little bit circuitous. So I, that year that I spent traveling volunteering was figuring out sort of sort of where I wanted how I, what I thought my contribution should be. My first non volunteer job was a, a public policy advocate, public health policy advocacy, um, for a year, and then I realized well because in that particular role I was kind of doing M and A because we were, had to review all of these documents for when healthcare systems went from um, public to private. And I thought, oh, I actually really need to be f- focused on not just the purpose, but the day to day. And so, my next job, I worked at Catalyst. So, Catalyst is a nonprofit that focuses on, on, focuses on creating an environment where um, women um, can where women can succeed. Because the 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 theory is that if you're creating an environment where there's equity. And you're creating an environment that works for the for the for the most vulnerable in your, in your in the work environment. you're creating an environment that works for everyone. So I was a uh, uh, I was a, on the advisory services team, so really basically an external consultant, but for a nonprofit, creating work strategies that that uh, that created equitable equity within work. I did that for three years, but I realized while I was there what I really wanted because I, I, I was essentially in a role where I was going into companies and saying, hey, you should do X, y, and Z. But I realized what I really wanted was to be in a position of power because it's one thing to be on, on the outside saying, hey, you should do X. It's another thing to be on the inside, being in a position to make those decisions um, myself or to influence those decisions more directly. And it, it crystallized, I think, sharpened my two things or a couple things. One, that I'm committed to working across the continent, that I wanted the content to always be part of my portfolio. Two, that I wanted to be in, uh, in a position to influence business decisions uh, three that I wanted that I that I that I wanted to go back because at the time I was sort of rotating through business and diversity, but I wanted specifically to be able to use my law career or l- use my law degree again. As it happened, uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because there's a bunch of stuff in between. But as it happened, Yahoo in 2008, we're looking for someone to start and direct their very first uh, business and human rights program. So really looking at the intersection between tech, human rights, law, policy. And they're looking for someone with a weird back. So someone who had worked abroad, someone who who, um, was connected to human rights work, someone who had civil society NGO experience, um, someone who had worked on the business side. And I had all of those weird things in my portfolio. And so I ended up taking the job at Yahoo. And by the time I left, I didn't was also feeling like my role was global, but because Yahoo's business was contracting and the influence and the impact wasn't global. So I decided I was gonna take a sabbatical because you could take a sabbatical and I was gonna take uh two or three months off and I was gonna volunteer. And miraculously, this I was a friend of mine who worked at Facebook said, Hey, could you at least look and see what there is at Facebook? And miraculously, Facebook was was hiring for a job for the head their very first head of policy for Africa. And so I thought, wait. I could get paid to do this thing that I'm volunteering to do. Amazing! That also coincided with um, we had we'd had a two year old, but we just had twins. And girl, we had a two year uh, old girl, and we had a twin, so a boy and a girl. And as soon as I had a boy, I realized that I could not raise a black son in America. So it was two things: one that I knew that I wanted to work across the continent, and all I also knew that I could not live in America. So those two things coalesced and this job came up and, uh, that's how I ended up here, basically being able to do work that was so aligned with my personal values and my, and, and what, and, and, and where I see this as the way I can bring, I don't know, justice in the world. And then also aligned with it, with my personal reality, which is that, uh, I cannot, I refuse to live in America.
2: You, you mentioned how loss has played such an important part and pivotal part in your life. I suppose the, the recent callous and cavalier killing of George Floyd that has sparked the protests in the U.S. and across the world was surely a difficult one for you to process
0: personally, right? Well, my brother was murdered by police in 2018. So, the, so state-sponsored violence against Black people is not new for me. Certainly okay. the past week has been incredibly difficult in that it's been incredibly triggering. Um, But this, there are people who are new to this as a realization, but I'm not one of them. Uh, So, so, um, so, so I'm saying this not to say that this hasn't been difficult, but it's been, I think it's been difficult for some people because they are new to this conversation. But for me, I'm not new to it.
2: How come we are in the year 2020 and we're still like facing this reality? What, what has gone wrong
0: well, what has gone wrong? So this is the system. What we're seeing is a system working exactly as it is intended to work. So this is not going wrong. So so if you look at, so first of all, if you step back and you look at a global system of white supremacy, so which, which explains, I mean, if you look at colonization, if you look at imperialism, all of it is backed by this. At no point has that ever been, uh, at no point has anyone ever sat down and said, Look at that. Look at the nations that have been created. Look at the nations that, that have been destroyed. Look at the wealth that has been looted. Look at the, the power balance. Look at the in- imbalance of power around the world, all in service of white supremacy. So all of that is still there. And then if you look at America, if you if you narrow the lens, and if you look at America, America was founded on white supremacy. And at no point has that ever been repudiated. So at no point has white supremacy as a founding doctrine been reputed? I mean, you can throw stuff over and say, oh, well, you guys, we had Obama as a president. That doesn't change the structure. That doesn't change the systemic nature of it. So if you think about policing in the US, the very first police forces in the US was, was in South Carolina in the 1700s. And they were created in order to return enslaved people who had the temerity to escape. So if you think about that's where policing came from, if you look at the prison system in the U.S., the prison system in the U.S. exploded after after the abolition of slavery. Essentially, because what you wanted to do is because once you couldn't once you couldn't enslave people, um, you couldn't uh, you couldn't outright enslave people. Then you had to figure out other ways of bondage because there's a carve out there's a carve out in the amendment that says slavery or bondage is is okay in this, in the in if people are in quote criminals. So what you do is you create a criminal class. So before you created a class that was just according to race. So what you do is you evolve it and you then call all black people criminals, in which case of so the convict leasing system that happened in the U.S. right after the, um, the, the abolition of formal slavery, essentially created a whole class of crimes that were only applicable to black people. So you were a criminal if you weren't, if you're a black person and you weren't attached to a white master or boss, mm then you were a criminal if you were loitering if you didn't loitering is just standing around like anyone would stand around if mm-hmm. you didn't have a pass if you for example were a black man and you and your and you didn't want your wife to work in white homes all of those mm, uh, dozens hundreds of different things were were classified as crimes and uh, crimes that only black people could be convicted of and then so they cre- created a new system of slavery that was based upon criminality. The convict leasing system as it existed right after slavery is not, it has evolved. And so now you have mass incarceration. So again, so so there's no reason we wouldn't be going through this in 2020 because absolutely nothing has been done to essentially explode the, the foundation that created this the, that that created the systems under which we operate. If you look at things like redlining in the US where black people weren't allowed to buy homes, you were, black people were forced to buy homes in very small areas that that were ghettoized. If you look at in the US, the GI bills, so the GI bill after World War II allowed that is that has been the step up out of poverty for white America because it allowed them access to loans, it allowed them access to business loans black people were excluded from that. So every form of welfare that was given to American society, black people were deliberately excluded, excluded black people were excluded from education, black people were excluded from jobs. And so I, to me, I would be I am I have to say that I remain slightly bemused, but then at the under underneath that, enraged that people say, how are we still dealing with this in 2020? Nothing about the underlying structure has changed. How do we go about changing those structures? Well, here's the thing. In order to create equity, white supremacy, and the system of power that we have created has to end. So and part of it, and I always and I always, so 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 and, and this is across everything. So it's interesting, so because one of the things that we're talking about now is defunding police. That's one piece. There's multi multiple pieces of it, and many people have written have written about it. I mean, things as basic as reparations in the in uh, in the UK and in, in the US as well. Reparations were paid to people who owned human beings. Nothing was given to the people whose lives were ruined. If you think there's a conversation now about defunding the police, and that sounds very shocking to people in the context of the US. Oh my gosh, how could you do, defund the police? We've defunded education, we've defunded healthcare, and we've put all of, the, all, of the, all of the outcomes that are supposed to be addressed by those systems. So if you, a society that invests in education, a society that invests in healthcare, a society that invests in social services, that society has very little need for the type of policing that, that America has invested in. It, it
2: sounds like you, you're saying we need to press reset. Yes. Are we going to be able to bring people to agree to the fact that we need to press reset?
0: Yes. Anything that you're doing now is just is is um, is frosting, frosting on a shit cake. So anything. So, you know, saying so saying stuff like, well, police reform, if the purpose of if, if police still think that they are an occupying army, if police still think that their goal is to control, even if it's not said, but, if, but they act as if their goal is to control black bodies, if, if the only tools at their disposal are, are weaponry, then no amount of sensitivity training or diversity training or chatting with community is gonna change because those are the tools and those are the objectives and if you multiply you have to multiply that across all of these different spheres of of uh, of society if your society is built upon excluding people and it's built upon uh, ensuring that ensuring that whiteness prevails and whiteness leads then it'll never change letting in a couple of black people at the table or letting a couple of asian people throwing in a couple of women when you still have that construct when you still have that system of power it, does, it won't change, and I think we've seen over the past decades, over the past centuries, that all it does is evolve. It doesn't change it.
2: How do we get people to understand why all lives obviously do matter, but when we think black lives matter, there is a different message that we are sending here?
0: I have, di- I have divested from that conversation. I'm just gonna be very honest. I'm not interested in that conversation. Because anyone who's saying it now is not someone who's interested in being convinced, and I personally am no longer interested in convincing people of my right to exist or of my humanity.
2: You know, at the moment, there are so many people, and many of whom are friends who are, you know listeners on this podcast, who just struggling to handle all these overwhelming feelings and emotions and this badgering of information on social media and in the news and everything, to the extent that you can, how, how are you dealing with that? What advice do you have for people?
0: So, I mean, it depends on who you are. I mean, so I think part of it is recognize the ways in which you, so if you're someone who um, is white, recognize the ways in which you benefit from the system as it is. So I think what happens is people look at it and they think, "Oh my gosh, it's so horrible that that happened in the US or in Minneapolis or, you know, and every in the US, I mean every week, actually more than every week, there's there's a, there's another incident of in this. I think it's easy to say that is a a bad thing that's happening there and not to to think yourself about the ways in which you benefit from a system of white supremacy. So I I encourage people to think, look at your pl- your place of employment. Is your place of does your place of employment look like the community that you're serving? Are you yourself in a position of power, and in, are you using your power to advocate for justice and for equity? That's the question I would. Ask. And, and there's also tons of writing that has been done on this. I mean, there are many, many, many books, many, many authors, and what I would encourage people who are new to this as a conversation is to your point about education, to educate themselves. Now, this is to me is a self-education process. It's not the role um, of Black people who are worried about their li- who are who are in a position where we're worried about our lives to then take time to educate you. It's your turn to be, to educate. It's your turn to lean into this as a conversation. If you are a black person, you're in a position of authority, you're in a position of power, even though our positions are precarious because of the, the system in which we operate, I have always seen it as my responsibility. There's no point being in a position of power if you're not using your power for equity, if you're not using your power for justice. there is a Michelle Obama had this uh, quote where she talked about people uh, finally getting to the table, they're finally at the table, and then they're afraid of shaking the table. If you are a person of color and you're in a position of power and your position of authority, it is your job to not be afraid of shaking the table. Because if, if you're not, if you are, what is the point of you being there? The purpose of you being there is to shine the light on other people behind you, to pull people up, to create, to, to insist that people have difficult conversations.
2: You know, we talk about education and obviously it will play a big part People are being advised to talk and to listen. And, you know, many of us, when we look at our social media, we see that, you know, some people are starting to be vocal, whether it's reflecting internally, whether it's trying to educate others. A concern of mine is that aren't we, at the end of the day, preaching to our own choirs, the people who most need to self-educate or de-educate themselves and re-educate are actually not even listening or have access to the information that all the new sources that will push them to really question their thinking on, on these
0: mat- on this matter. And as soon the question, what should be done with those people? I mean, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just going to say that I personally, that is not, that's not my mission. So I feel like, so for example, you're asking what people should do. So those people, so I would say uh, um, white allies who are wondering what to do, that's your work. That's your work. So your families, your fathers, your uncles, one of the things that irritates me the most is hearing people say, well, gosh, you know, my uncle or my brother or my cousin or whichever. They have these racist views and I just find it so difficult. And so I just cut them off. You cut them off. So we're supposed to deal with them, us. That's your work. So those of you who are looking for something to do, something, a, a way to engage, that's your work. It is their work to speak to their people.
2: You know, something else that these protests have triggered is sort of an increased awareness and consciousness around other issues of discrimination that exist in the world, right? So racism, there's obviously racism against Black people, racism against people of color. The issue of colorism is coming up in certain communities, like in the Asian communities. At the same time, it is important for us to not lose focus on the fact that there is one very specific issue that we are currently trying to raise awareness about. How how do you get people to... Find a balance between wanting to do something about these other causes that they care about, while at the same time honoring what what requires and needs um, attention and voice right now.
0: Yes, I think this is where the conversation on intersectionality and um, so Fannie Lou Hamer's quote. And I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but essentially she said, "No one's uh, until everybody's free, no one's free." And that's mm-hmm. the thing. So all of these struggles are inter- interconnected. And I think this is why talking about it as not as individual little struggles against each other, but as understanding what's the root of it. What's the root of it? The root of it is, um, is economic disenfranchisement. The root of it is white supremacy and white supremacy is something that was made up, that was created mm-hmm. in order to amass economic power and political power. So I think if to the, People need, if you're recognizing that, then you're recognizing that all of these struggles are interlinked and struggling in one arena is, does not take away from anybody else's struggle or should not take away from anybody else's struggle. All of our struggles are interlinked. So, so I actually, and and I think people have to decide you, you should be looking at all of these struggles as connected, but you contribute where you can, I mean, you can't, you can't necessarily contribute to every single struggle, but you contribute where you are, you contribute where you're most able with the understanding that all these, I mean, to me, the dopest thing, or one of many beautiful things that I've seen just odd was seeing K-pop rise up. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is the most beautiful thing. Like solidarity is amazing. And I think in my view, so if you look at the, the history of the US, one of the reasons why um, race uh, race was codified so why it became black people who needed to be enslaved was because in the very beginning it was black people it was people from different from different ethnic groups who were considered poor and when those people came together so when you had in the like in the 1700s se- in the US when you had the indentured servants who were white coming together with the black Indentured servants, that was when it became clear, oh no, no, no. We need to be able to divide because if people stand in solidarity, there's no way that this would be will be effective. So I think if people keep that in mind, that solidarity is the antidote, that having solidarity across all of these struggles is the antidote. So not one person saying, My struggle is greater than yours, of course. Mm-hmm. In the moment, there are particular struggles that can be more acute. So if you're looking at Syria, if you're looking at Libya, these are struggles that are acute. And so when a struggle is acute, obviously you spend uh, time, you, you spend energy on those particular struggles. But that does not mean that any one struggle is more important than the other. And it, and also we know that struggles feed off of each other. So we know that, for example, there are conversations going on in Palestine where we know that, um, that, there's, that they, there's definitely a connection between... The, the the suffering in Palestine and and there's a there's a similarity in the construct of the of the subjugation between what's going on in Palestine what's going on in inner cities in the U S and it's that connectedness and it's that it's that it's that connectedness across struggle and learning from each other it's that solidarity that that will bring in my view uh, the outcomes that we're all looking for.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Before I let you go, I wanted to talk quickly about something that you mentioned earlier. Um, you talk about power. And obviously we've seen power at play um, for the wrong reasons. And we've also seen the power of people and voice and community. And what, what power do you think we hold individually at the moment?
0: What do you mean? Who? And when you say who, so like, who's who? Human. I mean, people
2: in, people in the world right now who are seeing this, watching this and, and know that there's something wrong, but there are a lot of people out there who just don't quite know yet what to do or how to go about
0: it, but surely they have power to do something. Yeah. So, so I think, but so, surely they have power to do something. Yeah. There are actually a ton of, so this is very context and person specific, the exact power that you have. Yeah. Right. So the very first thing is to educate, because everyone has power in the, uh, in the communities where they are, in the, jobs, in, the, in the jobs that they do. So the first thing is to educate yourself about what the problem is. Like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? The thing that I fear is that right now there's, there are a lot of voices. Inevitably, the voices will die down and the crisis will pass. And the biggest thing that people can do is not to let their attention waver because the voices are less loud. So the, big, the, the most critical thing is understand where are you situated when it comes to power? Where are you situated when it comes to uh, access to power? What can you do where you are? So again, I talked a little bit about this earlier. It's easy to look at the U.S. and look at police in the U.S. and say, well, okay, we don't have that here or wherever it is that you live. But there's always something that you can do where you are that is about sharing power and about creating equity where you are. And sometimes it means stepping aside. It means recruiting from it means recruiting from groups that, that don't match your personal friend set. It means advocating for people in your in your place of work. It means recognizing trigger words that are only used for people of color in uh, job assessment. Oh, she was aggressive. Oh, he. These are the, it, there are ways small to look at where power is situated where you are and to dismantle it.
2: I know it's very hard to feel positive or optimistic about our future in the current global climate. Do you think that we have reason to be positive
0: and continue having hope for the better future? So a couple of things, so I, uh, I am a prisoner of hope and, that, and I say that only because if, if I cannot hope, in my view, there's no point going on, right? so it, it cannot be that this war that the world as it is, is the same world that i 'm going to pass on to my children, so because of yeah. that, I personally have to have hope. I have to have hope until I die so that 's me I also uh, it like a, it was in February it was right before lockdown i I was at a dinner with Darren Walker, who is the head of the Ford Foundation and one of my you know, one of those people that you look at from afar and I have had so much respect for what he's done at the Ford Foundation and I raised this issue to him. i was like, how do you stay hopeful? And he said, we have no right not to hope. If we look at where people who came, people before us came, so I talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. There are moments in history where you see bright spots. And so the only thing I can do, and so what he said is, if the people who came before us, people who were enslaved, people who were murdered, if those people could have hope, how dare we be hopeless? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Wow. Thank
2: you so much, Abile, for your time, for your candor, and for these very thoughtful perspectives. I'm sure our listeners are gonna find them extremely
1: validating and useful. If you've made it this far in the episode, it hopefully means that you care enough. Or maybe Ebele's words were so powerful, her arguments so simple, so sensible and so clear, that they inspired you to listen till the end. Maybe it left you wanting to hear more, to learn more, to do more. Well, wait no longer. Do your part. History will judge us for this. If not history, our children surely will. I hope by now if anyone tells you it's not possible, you will tell them no, It's necessary.
0: Join us next time in the room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.